haunted mayhem. This episode of Haunted Mayhem is being brought to you by Scribbling Pen Publishing. Hello, and welcome to Haunted Mayhem. I'm your host, Brandon Nicole, here to talk all things murder and mayhem. Boy, can you believe it's August already? I mean, next thing you know, it's going to be Halloween, Thanksgiving, and then hello, Happy New Year. Um... And while most people are getting ready for back to school, this mama right here ain't ready. I can tell you that right now. I'm one of those flexible moms, you know, the one that has skip days because it's snowing two hours north of us. I'll go grab those babies and we will make a snow day because here in Arkansas, we don't get many snow days. Um, I'm, Or, hey, springtime, beautiful day, creek level's perfect. Let's grab those kayaks. I am me and have been criticized a lot for it, but you know what? Screw them. We made precious memories on those skip days and my kids still made honor roll. We're good. Thank you. But yeah, I'm not ready for all the heat, the back to school sales and getting tied to a clock. I hate being tied to a clock. Uh, Gypsy soul, take me home. Like I ain't about it. But anyway, speaking of precious memories, I recently unplugged and went camping with the fam. Didn't expect to enter my life as a new dog, but um, thanks to a bunch of assholes who decided to leave um, a precious baby angel tied to a tree, we now have a new family member, uh, Yodi. Um, don't really know what mix of dog she is, other than free spirit because she crazy. Um, the transition has been something. My other two dogs, um, are not happy. I will tell you that for the last five years, it's just been them two. They've been happy. They've adjusted. They know when to leave each other alone. Oh, that one's being pissy. Okay. Well, I'm going to go sit over here. This one riles them up every day. (laughs) So it's been a big adjustment, but, um, to, Anybody out there who thinks it's okay to tie a dog to a tree in the middle of nowhere in 100 degree weather, screw you. That's not okay. There are shelters. There are people. At least give the dog a fighting chance. I mean, should you drop them off in the middle of nowhere? No. But if you want to be a dick and do it anyway, don't tie them to a tree. Let them have a chance to get to some water. Okay. Be a little, a little decent. Like, just a smidgen. I know it's hard for you, but I'm sure you can find it in there somewhere. Okay. Okay. Um, also while I was away, I actually got to read another book. I think I'm on a new role here because I cannot tell you the last time I read two books in a month. Uh, pre-kid maybe? Pre-kids? No. Yeah, probably pre-kids. But this month I did it. And I'm like, woohoo, goals. Uh, so the book I finished while away on our camping trip was Wild is the Witch by Rachel Griffin. I loved the book. It was a great fantasy novel. Um, the one thing that I was just kind of eh 
about was the main character's rash decision making. Um, but I understand she was panicking, but it does take you on a great adventure. Um, and it was kind of fitting because they were camping to find an owl and we were camping and we had an owl hooting next to our tent all weekend. So it actually set the vibe for the book very, very well. Uh, a recent podcast I come upon that I cannot get enough of, um, like I am obsessed with listening to it. It's a true pri- it's a true crime podcast called What Really Happened at the Lord's Ranch. So this happened in Arkansas. And it's two former residents of the Lord's Ranch who go back over 40 years and interview various generations of former residents, staff members, local townspeople, and a local award-winning investigative journalist about a religious-based adolescent treatment facility in Warm Springs, Arkansas. And every episode that I have listened to so far is just full of shocking information. And like, I live in Arkansas, and for some reason, I, maybe it's because maybe it's because I'm not like in the religious circle deep enough. I don't know, don't really care, but I had never heard of this ranch. Um, turns to find out there's three ranches in America that are all connected kind of the same way. And the Lord's Ranch is one of them. And like, there are, um, politicians connected to it. There are, I mean, it's just, it gets twisted almost kind of like on the scale of, well, probably not that high of a scale, but I was going to say, uh, Epstein, but it's not that deep, but there are some high-end politicians who visit this place, know about this place, let the um, directors and owners of these ranches get off scot-free from jail. Uh, you learn how the state goes from paying them $150,000 per year to like $5 million within a three-year span. Why? There's no reason why. So it's very interesting, and if you're really into true crime, if you're really into conspiracy theories and cults and all of that, this, I'm telling you, this is a good podcast to listen to. And of course, you know, it's in Arkansas, I'm in Arkansas, I'm going to be hooked to it, but I think it's very interesting no matter where you live. All right, so what's happening over in the Once Upon a Podcast Network corner? Well on unpaused life the ladies discuss how society shoves anti-aging products down our throats a freaking men um so these ladies discuss their own feelings and methods to keep their heads held high even when we feel like shrinking into the shadows because lord knows if we don't have that perfect ageless skin we're gonna get shamed no no um, on Mimesis, what better inspiration for a book character than the most hated man in America? Join Stacy and Sandra as they compare Gone Girl, written by Jillian Flynn, to the Scott Peterson case that she loosely based it on. And I just got through watching a documentary about Scott Peterson. Psycho is all I'm saying. Pathological liar. What in the world? And... <sighs> I don't know. That whole case was just insane. And he still is claiming he's innocent, but 
bro you don't look so innocent i'm just saying and how many people did you lie to um a lot especially that girl amber that you were seeing oh bless her heart for coming forward um but yeah like give uh give all my nieces uh a listen and see what these two girls got to say and then on the latest episode of the genuine creative listen and learn while we get in our own way and while we act toward a goal and then revert to our old ways oh yes have you ever done that like oh i have a goal i want to lose weight this has been my latest one i'm gonna go to the gym every day or not every day that's crazy but okay let's say three times a day three times a week and you go once and then it's like you feel good you're like oh yeah i got this and then you don't ever go again you revert back to your old ways so give if you relate to that as i do um give the genuine creative a listen learn see if we can change those habits then finally on starlight tea chrissy and belinda are serving the tea on the power of play and why it's important to not only let our creativity but our health be unearthed we they discuss what play is and offer suggestions on how you can include more of this vital energy into your daily life lord do i need daily energy <laughs> so check it out once upon a podcast network Got some great things happening in the corner. All right, let's get to it, shall we? So today I'm going to talk about a very despicable man. Like, this is a bottom dweller. You know, the people who are sick and deranged and don't even deserve attention. But their victim stories do. Um, I'm going to talk about Richard Cottingham, a.k.a. The torso killer. So I'm going to start off by telling you a little about Richard's childhood, then his killing spree, his ultimate demise and capture before talking about the two girls that haunted this sack of shit until he confessed to their murders. All right, here we go. Richard Cottingham, who would later become known as the torso killer, was born on November 25th, 1946 in the Bronx in New York City. He would be the first of four children. In 1948, Cottingham's family moved to DeMont, New Jersey, and in 1956 to Rivervale, New Jersey, where he began his fascination with bondage pornography. Hello, step in the wrong direction. Anyway. According to Cottingham, the whole idea of bondage had aroused and fascinated him since a very young age. Okay. You may need to talk to your mama. Cottingham had a close relationship with his mother growing up, but reportedly had difficulty making friends as a teenager. Hmm. I wonder why. You know, there are these things called creepy vibes. Perhaps you were giving them off there, Richard. Yeah. In 1964, Cottingham graduated from Pascas Valley High School in Hillsdale, New Jersey. His graduation yearbook stated that Cottingham was a member of the school's cross-country and track team. Must have been running off some of those frustrations. After his graduation, Cottingham worked for Metropolitan Life, where his father was a vice president 
starting in the mailroom at the firm's Manhattan headquarters and eventually became a mainframe computer operator upon taking computer courses. So, you know, so he sounds like he's doing, you know, upstanding citizen, getting the job, taking computer courses, da 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 But there's always the dark side. In October 1966, he became a computer operator for Blue Cross and Blue Shield, where he worked until his 1980 arrest. Now, here's what gets me, okay? At Blue Cross, Cottingham worked in an office with Rodney Alcala, a fugitive child molester who lived in New York under the alias John Berger. Neither man claimed to have been aware of the other, nor is there any evidence they were familiar with each other prior to their respective arrests. Okay, seriously, background checks. I don't know. Mental health checks. We got two dudes working at Blue Cross Blue Shield in the same office that end up being serial killers and child molesters. What are the odds? Oh my gosh. Makes you really wonder about your coworkers. Now I'm going back to work like, mm, what's your dark side? Mm. On May 3rd, 1970, Cottingham was married at Our Lady of Lord's Church in Queens Village, Queens. He had three children, two boys and a girl, with his wife. All seemed hunky-dory. Not really. That marriage would only last until April of 1978. When his wife filed for divorce on the grounds of abandonment and mental cruelty. It appears that Mr. Cottingham refused to have sex with his wife after the birth of their third child. And he would stay out until early morning and leave her with the insufficient household funds. His wife withdrew the petition upon his arrest in May 1980. Then completed the divorce after his 1981 conviction. Good for her. I hope she moved on and got a better life. Um, I can't believe he... Like, okay, excuse us for having your children. Hello? I'm sorry that I need a few. And then to totally turn away and be like, Nah, I'm done with you. Screw you, buddy. Screw you. I'm, I divorced his ass too. So, Cottingham claims to have started killing as an adolescence. Okay. So, none of that was proven, um, his claim for his killing spree being started in his adolescence. But it did start um, from what they have discovered in his late teens. Uh, and he has also claimed to kill as many as, as 100 victims. Cottingham often sought female sex workers in their late teens to mid-twenties and is believed to have killed people in Florida, Connecticut, New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Baltimore. Damn. He would approach his victims in bars, drug them, take them to a remote location, and would bind, gag, torture, and stab them before killing them by strangulation or asphyxiation. Trophies like jewelry and other personal items belonging to his victims were taken by him. The whole trophy thing has always just boggled me. Okay, so I get it. You want to, so they want to take something that reminds them of the moment. Ew, disgusting. 
But why keep evidence? Like, how many... Okay, can you not learn from your previous serial killer buddies? If you take evidence from the victim and they later find it in your possession, you have just turned over your guilty verdict right there. So I never understood that even though you see these serial killers on TV, you've seen them for years, they they got convicted because they had trophies, blah, 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 blah. And I know you, you listen to profilers and I have studied psychology for years. It is a, it's an impulse. They have to do it. It's kind of like OCD. Like they just cannot not take something. Um, they know that it's dangerous. That's also a part of the thrill of it. Um, but I, there's got to be a part of you that's got to know, hey, all of these freaking jerkwads before me have gotten captured because they took a trophy. Maybe I should, you know, not and say I did. Like, put it there in the old memory bank. But you know what? Keep taking the trophies. Keep getting the asses caught. You deserve nothing better than to be in jail. So, go ahead. Um, da -da 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 -da. Okay. Well, so, what finally led to his arrest? Because he had went almost 30 years, 20, 25 years, 25, 30 years um, on his killing spree. Never being caught. Never being suspected. Um, so, what? what finally led to it well unfortunately it wasn't a great haunting like some of the prior episodes but it did come down to one badass chick who fought for her life um in the early morning hours of may 22nd 1980 cottingham picked up 18 year old prostitute leslie ann odell okay side note let's change prostitute please um I should have actually changed it myself when writing my draft. They're not prostitutes. They're sex workers. They are literally doing a job that they have to, to take care of themselves, take care of their families. It is a job. If you pay for it, if they're going home, if they're giving a service, it is a job. We're not going to, we need to change this whole, we're going to treat them like shit attitude. Because they're doing a job. Okay. So. Cottingham picked up 18 year old sex worker. Leslie Ann Odell. Who was soliciting on the corner of Manhattan's Lexington Avenue and 25th Street. They checked into the Hasbro Cots Quality Inn at room 117. Cottingham offered to give Odell a massage. And she rolled onto her stomach. Straddling her back, he drew a knife and put it to her throat as he snapped a pair of handcuffs on her wrist. He began torturing her, nearly biting off one of her nipples. Oh my god. She later testified that he said, you have to take it. The other girls did. You have to take it too. You're a whore and you have to be punished. At one point, Odell reached under the bed for a fake gun that Cottingham had threatened her with, thinking it was real and attempted to shoot Cottingham with it. When it did not fire, Cottingham came at her with the knife. She screamed, oh God, no. The screams brought motel employees to the room and they summoned police. Cottingham was arrested in the hallway at gunpoint. When arrested, he had handcuffs, 
a leather gag, two slave collars, ew, a switchblade knife, replica pistols, and a stockpile of prescription pills. I'm sorry, but who's the horror here? Because slave collars, really? And you're going to go around calling other people whores, you bitch? Anyway, the charges listed in Cottingham's New Jersey indictment included kidnapping, attempted murder, aggravated assault, aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, aggravated sexual assault while armed, rape, aggravated sexual assault while armed, sodomy, aggravated sexual assault while armed, possession of a weapon, switchblade and the knife, and possession of controlled substances. And it has a list of pills that he had. Um, looked like he was ready to party hardy. So, um, in April 1978, after his wife had initiated divorce proceedings, he kept a locked, they discovered a locked room in a basement apartment of the house in which they lived in Lottie, New Jersey. Guess what they found? That's right. All the trace evidence of the trophies of the victims that he had who would have saw that coming um now as disturbing as all of this is there is a hauntingly good part that i like to think is two young girls who died in fear and came back with a vengeance um they were not cottingham's standard mo you know he usually went after sex workers he usually you know, kept him for a night or not even that long because he would go home. He didn't want to raise suspicion, but he went off track with this one. And not only did he take more than one girl, but they were not sex workers. He kept them for three days and they are the ones out of his so-called 80 to 100 victims that haunted him until the day he confessed and you know what he might still be haunted by them no one's interviewed him since his confessions um you know who wants to interview the piece of shit now that we all know what he did and got justice for the girls that could be tied to him so anyway um we don't care what he has to say we don't care if he's haunted but we do know that these girls haunted him when other victims did not, and you have to wonder some part of that is what did these three girls, what did these two girls go through for those three days? What did he say to them? What did they say to him? Did they say something? What was it that, that made these girls stick out to him the most? And I honestly think it was because it was not his MO and he stayed with them for longer there's no telling what they said to him. And I'm glad that he had, whether it was a level of creepy remorse or whatever, he remembered these girls and they haunted his mind for, for the rest of his life because they deserve that. They deserve to be remembered by their loved ones, but they also deserve him to suffer and remember what he did and so and but who are these girls it was 17 year old Marianne Pryor and 16 year old Lorraine Marie Kelly 
um, a little backstory. They were friends um, and they lived right down the road from one another. They always hung out. They often took hitchhiking trips to the, to the city to go shopping, to hang out. Um, it wasn't unusual for them. And you've got to think this is in the sixties, <sighs> you know, that was, that was a lot of the problems you hear these serial killer stories and it all goes back to, especially during the, the 50s, 60s and 70s, hitchhikers who were like, okay, once word spread, we're like, okay, don't get in cars with strangers. So, but these girls, the 60s, people did it all the time. They were hitchhiking their way north. Um, it was going, they, 13 miles north to the Paramus shopping center where they wanted to go buy swimming, swimming suits for a trip to the Jersey shore that was coming up. So these girls were not his typical MO. Um, Cottingham had actually seen them on the side of the road and on a spur of the moment decision, did a Yui went back, picked them up. And instead of dropping them off at the shopping center, went on and got a hotel and tortured these poor girls for three days. Um, he tied them up. He raped them. He said there, he said the look in their eyes as he went to drown them haunts him to this day. Good. Get them girls. Marianne and Lorraine were found five days after they went missing. Now, remember, um, Conningham had kept them for three days in his hotel. And then he disposed of them, and they were found two days after that. Lorraine was reportedly found with a uh, beaded bracelet and a necklace that read Lorraine and Ricky, a reference to her boyfriend. Mary Ann was discovered with a gold cross, a gift from her godfather. As part of a plea agreement, prosecutor said Cottingham is expected to get two life sentences, which are to be served concurrently with the time he's already serving. And that is a story of Richard Cottingham, AKA the torso killer and the hauntings that hopefully still haunt him to this day. If he's even alive, I didn't even check to see if the man is still alive. I don't care. I mean, and if he is, girls, get him. Get him. So, what are your theories? Why do you think that those two girls are the ones that haunted him? I think not only that it had to do, like I said, I, you know, it was out of his MO, wasn't his typical rape and torture, get it over with thing. He spent time with these girls. They were teenagers. They were younger than, than the girls that he normally went after. And we don't know what they said to him. And he said, the look in their eyes. Yeah. Let that haunt you, you, you sack of shit. So, anyway. Um, all right. Let's switch gears to your hometown haunts. Um, I've got two this week, actually. Um We've actually got more coming in, um, and I'm loving them. So hopefully I can start reading two a week now. Um, so yeah, here we go. Um, greetings. A sophomore from my sister's high school went missing around a month ago. Her mother was in a relationship with an abusive douche canoe. <laughs> okay. 
That might be my new favorite word. Douche canoe. I love it. With plans to file for divorce and to move down south with their family, the mother and daughter thought everything would be over soon. Girl doesn't show up to school for a few days and her classmates just assume that she's sick. I'm sure her friends text her, but those details are unclear to me. All I know is that the neighbor smelled something bad and had the police investigate the girl's house. Police find the girl and her mother bludgeoned to death and rotting away. Murder weapon was a hammer and the boyfriend did it. Psycho just left them there. Craziest thing that haunts me is thinking about who had to go first and had to watch the other go down with a hammer being beaten to a bloody pulp themselves. Guy's in jail now and I hope he rots there. Wishing you all the best. Ty. Uh, yeah, that would be haunting too. Uh, no matter which way it is, you know you're sitting there watching your loved one be killed. And that is terrible. Um, thank you, Ty, for sharing that story with us. Uh, yeah, so sad. I wish they could have made it out. Um, props to that mom for trying. Our next hometown haunt comes from her cold hands. One that has always disturbed me in my hometown happened just up the road from where I lived. This guy, who had talked about killing and hurting his mother for years because she was abusive, came back to the family home at age 22. In a heated argument, he stabbed his mother 57 times. Damn, that is some rage. He claimed she picked up the knife and asked him to leave the house. He took it from her and followed her up the stairs, then did the stabbing. And that he did not mean, he said he didn't mean to kill her or hurt her badly. That's not the fucked up bit. He got done, he got done for unlawful homicide with a minimum sentence of 22 months. He got out on time served straight away and then he lived at the family home with the dad and sisters like it was hunky dory. I got shivers walking past that house knowing what shit went down in there. Huh. Yeah, I would have too. And 22 months? Are you serious? He killed, like, can we not get a year for each stab wound at least? Damn. 57 times? That is some rage. Well, thank you, Ty and her cold hands for sharing your stories. As always, if you have a hometown haunt that you would like to share, send it to me. Um, it'd be a murder gone wrong. A scary urban legend, you know, some fable grandpa's cooked up in the kitchen. Who's to say? Send them in and let them be heard. Brandy at brandynicole.com. Thanks for tuning in to another haunting episode. Until next time, friends. Bye. Haunted Mayhem.